I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. It's 2021. I hope everyone had a great new year and, uh, and is excited about what, what's to come. The news that happened over the holidays is that uh, Peloton acquired this company called Precore for $420 million. You can see here, Precore was owned by a Finnish conglomerate called Amer Sports or Amer Sports, uh, which is, I guess it's a conglomerate based out of Finland. Um, it owns, you know, Precore was one business unit within, you know, in, inside of this company, which makes a lot of tennis rackets and a you know, bunch of other kind of sports and fitness related equipment. Peloton bought this. And I think there's two reasons behind why they bought it. Overall, I actually really, I actually really like the acquisition. Peloton, um, despite them using the word platform, I think 90 plus times in their uh, S1, it's not a platform business. You know, they have their own uh, connected bike equipment. They have their own, um, you know, instructors that help you on your live streams and so on and so forth. But uh, it doesn't have that that consumer, that producer, that two-sided uh, marketplace type relationship. Um, you know, there isn't an ecosystem of all these different third-party creators or something of the sort. I mean, maybe they could go in that direction and they are trying to dabble with things, but but they aren't at kind of that, that platform status, despite using the word all over their S1. Anyway, I really like this acquisition because, um, well, Peloton will say part of the reason is to uh, bolster their domestic manufacturing because Precor is its a company based out of Massachusetts and they have, I think, a couple of manufacturing facilities in the U.S. Peloton's been having delivery issues. This could potentially help uh, Peloton bring more of their manufacturing into the United States. And then the other thing is that Precor makes a lot of fitness equipment for gyms. If you think about what is, you know, what is Peloton's trajectory? Um, are they just going to have a cycling bike or are they going to have other connected equipment, right? We've seen uh, Mirror get acquired by Lululemon, which I'll come back to here in a second. But we've seen, you know, we've seen other kinds of this connected sports equipment um, come into fruition. And so to me, What's exciting about this is it opens up the opportunity for Peloton to say, hey, how else could we bring this connectivity, this kind of digital um, experience coupled with you know, the physical equipment? How can we kind of bring these things together? And Precore will give them a great mechanism to try to deliver on that because Precore is already making a lot of other kind of high-end machines. We'll see where this goes. $420 million. It's not a big acquisition by, an, by any means. Uh, for Peloton. Um, but I think, you know, it gives them some kind of immediate synergies. Peloton market cap, $44 billion. So this is less than 1% of their value on this pre-core deal. But if Peloton can start, instead of kind of being a one-hit wonder with, you know, the the bike, be interesting to see if, if Peloton's able to now have uh, multiple different connected machines that you know, are, are kind of standalone uh, high-end pieces of equipment that, that the consumer would want to buy. And Precore helps them break into more of the commercial, the gyms, the hotels uh, industries as well. Anecdotally, I've had friends that are using Peloton and 
you know, if you do anything in life over and over to the extreme, it's not good for you, right? So if 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 all you're doing is cycling all day long, you can get injured. And uh, and I've had friends who have gotten injured or who have pulled things in their back, and it's not anything really against Peloton, but it's just you know if that is your if that's all you're doing and all you're doing is riding the bike, you know you can be more injury prone to that. So to me, it makes sense for why Peloton wants to diversify, get into other product lines. Um, and this seems like a, a relatively inexpensive way to do it. The interesting thing going back to this acquisition, though, is that it's a win in part for American manufacturing. Uh, I'm big on American manufacturing. I'm big on bringing you know, manufacturing back to the United States. This company, yes, it was owned by a Finnish company, but it was actually just owned by this investor consortium made up of Tencent. Okay, everyone, you know, they own WeChat and, and, and a bunch of other, you know, platforms, Tencent, uh, Tech Monopoly out of China, Anta Sports, another Chinese company, Fountain Vest Partners, a Chinese investment firm. Uh, and then those are the main partners. And then there's this Animared Investments. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that one is actually the only non-Chinese owner out of Finland. And that one is actually owned by this Canadian billionaire named Chip Wilson, who uh, is the founder of Lululemon, who interestingly enough, Lululemon bought Mirror. But Chip is not has not been involved in Lululemon for a while. Fun little story on Chip. I had to go look this up. It's not it's not that easy to find. But uh, I'm a big Atlas Shrugged Ayn Rand guy. So is Chip. And uh, in in his later years um, uh, after founding Lulu, they they were effectively trying to kick him out of the company. <laughs> Uh, because I guess one of his last acts was he made these bags that when you would check out from Lulu, they said, who is John Galt on them? So, I mean, if you could imagine him doing that today, God, he would, uh, he would be gone faster than, than just about any cancel culture we've seen. Uh, that would certainly take the cake for chip, but, um, but he did this maybe eight years ago or nine years ago. And I found the article on it. This is how you know the media, even back then, this is eight or nine years ago, portrayed this just what what a what a vile act uh, that that Chip had to to support um, Ayn Rand and objectivism and and these kinds of theories. And the title here is the Lululemon CEO Wilson knew it was time to go, and it basically goes on to say that. You know, he founded the company in 1998. He stepped down as chief innovation and branding officer on January. This is January of 2012. At that time, it had a $9 billion market cap. And they do have a little photo here of who is John Galt on the, on the Lulu bags. I'd say, I'd say that's pretty awesome. It's actually very endearing to me of the brand and you know, I guess what it used to stand for. Maybe some people inside the company do. I don't know, but they're certainly not doing these bags anymore. I can tell you that much. They addressed the bags. This was, I guess, their spokesperson saying they were well-intentioned, but poorly executed. Not really, you know, what Chip, what Chip was trying to accomplish was saying if John Galt had actually scorched the earth of all businesses, the kind of company that would be rebuilt to serve the needs of society and of the shareholders, Lululemon tries to be that company. I mean... Come on, man. Just own it. It's a great book. If you haven't read the book, I highly recommend the book. Um, it is Ayn Rand's you know, seminal novel, uh, 
you know, marking the, 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 I think it took her 10 years to write. This woman came out of, um, you know, Soviet Russia came to the U S in the, you know, in, in, in the first half of the 20th century. And what she started to see actually was she started to see a lot of the things that she grew up around in Soviet communist Russia taking root in the United States. And so she started to, you know, address what, what her theory is called as objectivism in a series of different books of hers. And basically the premise is this, if the world keeps dragging you down and dragging you down and dragging you down, right? If the people producing, right, have to just carry more weight and weight on their shoulders. So if you, you know, if the, the, the iconic kind of cover art on the, uh, on the book is Atlas with the world on his shoulders kneeling. It's actually an amazing statue with that same image in uh, Rockefeller Center in New York City. And so the people that produce in the world, that could be entrepreneurs, that could just be, you know, uh, people working hard at their day job, people that are working and producing and creating value in society versus the leeches. And the leeches, they keep taking and taking and taking and making it harder and harder on the people that are actually producing and working. And one day, Atlas, world on his shoulders, says, screw it. And he shrugs. And then you see what happens to the world. And that is Atlas Shrugged in a nutshell. Highly recommend it. I actually try to reread it every few years. It's somewhere around a thousand pages, depending upon, you know, which version you get of the book. There's three parts. First part is a little bit slow, but then it really starts to pick up once you're 300 plus pages into the book. Something that I first read back in college and I've continued to read it now, um, you know, multiple times over the years and uh, really is one of those just great books that you can kind of come back to a few years later. And then, and then, you know, see how you might digest a piece of the book a little bit differently. Um, also something great thing to do with, uh, with modern monopolies, obviously. But anyway, this trend around manufacturing, you know, ultimately I do think that the United States, we are going to see a resurgence of manufacturing and we have to see it. COVID I think has been, you know, a nice kick in the, you know, where for us to really focus once again on manufacturing. Uh, I think we're going to start to see manufacturing um, automation and new technologies really pick up in the medical uh, field. We are going to need, you know, subsidies will help, obviously. Um, the manufacturing sector needs all the help it can get with American manufacturing. Um, a lot of the jobs around that, that, you know, that have low cost labor we have not remained competitive in for a variety of reasons, right? China has really been the one to benefit from that. They have, um, well, over a billion people. And if you need cheap labor, they got that. We would be remiss to, to overgeneralize Chinese manufacturing as only being you know, cheap labor, albeit a lot of it is cheap labor. Um, and will remain to be cheap labor as their competitive advantage. But as you get those reps and those cycles, China, you know, going back a few decades now, starting with cheap labor. So what are the more commoditized manufacturing things that you can do? And then you can, 
you know, start to innovate and you can start to introduce technology to the manufacturing process, right? Foxconn, yeah, they got millions of people making iPhones, but it's not just the fact that they got millions of people as to why they are pretty much one of the only, if not the only manufacturer that can do what they do uh, at the scale that they do it for Apple. You know, there are reports that like Foxconn factories that they promise to make in the United States are empty. And, you know, a lot of these um, Chinese manufacturers uh, that, that have promised to invest in the U.S. and bring jobs here. Actually, a lot of that hasn't come to fruition. That is the rumor. But what is confirmed is um, what has gone on in Italy as it relates to manufacturing. Got a couple articles here, which is, this one is from 2014, January 2014. Fashion Network Magazine, Made in Italy by Chinese Workers. And then I got another article here from The New Yorker from 2018. Chinese workers uh, who assemble designer bags in Tuscany. Both of them are actually touching on somewhat the similar thing, which is that China has shipped hundreds of thousands of people to Italy to make Made in Italy designer goods. Actually, both of these articles center around this town called Prado, uh, or a city 15 miles northwest of Florence. And the first significant wave of Chinese immigrants arrived in the 1990s, right? So we're talking decades here uh, that this has happened. But if you remember, um, when COVID first hit, we, the United States, actually didn't COVID didn't spread to the U.S. initially from China. And actually, the way it got into the U.S. was it went actually to Italy, okay, because of these workers, went to Italy. They got hundreds of thousands of Chinese that are going back and forth. Remember, those flights didn't shut down. China kept those flights going. Meanwhile, they shut down domestic travel inside of China. And Italy also didn't block the flights. That's on them. That's actually how it got to the U.S. It actually came through Europe. Uh, COVID, right? It went from China to Europe to the U.S. And, and we were much slower to close the borders with Europe than we were with China. Um, so anyway, reason I bring this up is we're going to go a lot deeper or, or this episode and coming episodes looking at the state of manufacturing. And, and how do we bring manufacturing back to the United States? Um, there's a lot of stories in these articles. I'll summarize this because they get pretty long. But basically what it's saying is that, you know, not only were these Chinese workers coming in illegally, you know, if you look at the two articles, the article from 2014 says that there was, you know, um, as many as 50,000 Chinese live and work in this one city in Prado. And um, now they can make clothes bearing the prize made in Italy label. And then they sell these products back into China and other markets. Up to two thirds of the Chinese in Prado are illegal immigrants, according to local authorities. About 90% of the Chinese factory, factories, virtually all of which are rented out to Chinese entrepreneurs by Italians who own the buildings, break the laws in various ways. This includes using fabric smuggled from China, evading taxes, and grossly violating health and labor re regulations. 
This month, a fire, which prosecutors suspect was set off by an electric stove, killed seven workers as they slept in cardboard cubicles at a workshop. Yikes. This was 2014, this article, right? Now, you read the New Yorker article from 2018, then they say only 10% of the workers. So it went from two-thirds four years prior to down to 10% of the workers are now considered illegal in the New Yorker article. The New Yorker article goes much deeper into um, that actually there was a a ruling against the Bank of China last year as as the result of an investigation by the Italian finance ministry into $5 billion worth of questionable money transfers. The Bank of China, whose Milan branch had had reportedly been used for half of them, paid a settlement of more than $20 million. Many of the transfers, the authorities said, represented undeclared income from Chinese-run businesses or money generated by the counterfeiting of Italian fashion goods. In Italy, these sorts of investigations are often more show than substance. But they actually prosecuted it and won a settlement. And so what the article goes on to say is that, actually, you know, the Italians got the double whammy because there's stories in these articles about Italian uh, craftsmen and, 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 you know, good, you know, small boutique goods manufacturers that were put out of business because they couldn't compete uh, with what the Chinese factories were cranking out with, you know, illegal uh, Chinese labor. So that's the first, you know, whammy. The double whammy is that then the Chinese would basically import all their own uh, infrastructure. So they would, you know, use their own banking system. They would use their own restaurants, their own local businesses. They would um, basically have their own communities all amongst themselves. So they, these populations were not, this was two or three years ago, assimilating, they've been there for 20 plus years, we're not assimilating into the Italian community. Many of them just, you know, who have lived there for 10 plus years, never learned Italian because they didn't need to, right? It's kind of the, it's like a bubble. They're not paying taxes. They're not, you know, relying on other local Italian businesses. They are kind of say like terraforming. Um, they are bringing, you know, the, they're bringing all their own stuff uh, and and they are sending money back to China and not paying taxes. And so, you know, Italy, what the basically the, the Italian um, factory owners, they're benefiting from this. But otherwise, people are losing jobs and the local businesses aren't getting any benefit. So that's the double whammy. And this article goes, you know, pretty in depth. And this was this was before you know, everything has gotten so partisan around China. These articles, you know, you, if you look farther back, you'll you'll find a little bit. Um, more objective uh, journalism on these kinds of things. So this has been the trajectory of Chinese manufacturing over the years, right? Cheap labor. Now, we are seeing them invest successfully in high-tech manufacturing. If we see what they're doing uh, militarily or with the dragnet of, you know, the Great Firewall, um, their, their, you know, Huawei um, you know, all the different things technologically that they are that they are investing in, right? So you can't just regard them as a cheap labor uh, manufacturing competitor, but they certainly do have that in their arsenal and have now been making aggressive investments into factory and manufacturing automation. If you look at the natural trajectory of where marketplaces uh, 
end up. So product marketplaces, let's talk Amazon, let's talk Alibaba. If you, if you look farther out, right, and you look at Amazon, look at Amazon's trajectory. You know, a lot of these marketplaces, they start out catering. Their supply comes from third-party sellers. Um, those could be boutique retailers. Those could be, you know, individuals just kind of playing kind of product pricing arbitrage. There still are uh, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of sellers on Amazon that are buying off of Alibaba. So they're sourcing stuff from Chinese factories, buying it off of Alibaba, and then reselling it on Amazon. That theme is why you've seen, and we've covered on the show many times, um, the upward trend of pre-COVID, Amazon having almost 49% of their top 10,000 sellers were actually Chinese manufacturers. That's why you've seen Wish, which just IPO'd, like 97% of their sellers are Chinese manufacturers, right? So point here is these, these product marketplaces tend to start with that intermediary, that third-party seller, that distributor. And then as they get more demand, they want to basically cut the intermediary out and go directly to the manufacturer, right? That's a natural progression of, of a lot of these product marketplaces. So as marketplaces go directly to the manufacturer and as you see automation, uh, manufacturing automation investments ramp up, you know, there will be, there will be this, um, you know, tipping point where you say, okay, um, where does it, where can the manufacturing and can the technology and, and, and localized manufacturing uh, be competitive as it relates to, um, you know, uh, Amazon marketplaces just going directly to, to Chinese manufacturers. The, uh, the bad news is that pre-COVID, as I've mentioned, it was almost 50% was, um, this is 50% of the top 10,000 sellers on Amazon marketplace which is now probably close to 60, if not more, 60% of the stuff being sold on Amazon. And so think about that. Uh, if 60% of the stuff on Amazon, if half of that, so if 30% of the stuff being sold on Amazon is coming basically directly from a Chinese manufacturer, they've got, they've got a pretty big head start, right? So there are two main buckets as, as, as you think about manufacturing and how to break it down. So one bucket is electrical uh, and electronic manufacturing, right? Anything with chips, with electronics in it, um, that is a whole other, um, whole other ball game when it comes to manufacturing, right? Then the other bucket is basically everything else. So that could be textiles, which is a fancy word for clothes. That could be medical device products, right? So yes, there are connected medical devices that have electronics in them, right? Like ventilators. Um, but there are a whole slew of things classified as a medical device. It could be an implant, you know, for your dentist and your tooth. It could be, you know, the, the, the surgeon's tools. It could be, um, you know, you get a hip, you get a knee. Um, all of these things are considered medical devices. Could be PP, you know, medical devices and supplies would then be where the where the uh, 
PPE, the, you know, the, the protective equipment, which a lot of that just came out of, um, came out of China because of the pandemic here, China, Chinese manufacturing, particularly in the, in the medical supply space has seen a huge boon. Chinese manufacturers, uh, and the Chinese government were cutting deals left and right with the U S governors who were in a bind and, and just needed, um, you know, needed supplies ASAP. So here's a good little breakdown here. These two buckets, right? Electronics on the right side, you can see all the different things that could kind of go in, in, into here, medical device, you know, connected medical devices you could go into here. And then um, on the left side here, you got, you know, just about, everything else. So when we look at automation, so what are the, what can you actually manufacture and automate in that process, right? Because we cannot compete head to head with cheap labor. It's just not going to happen. And even the Italians when they import the labor, uh they still manage to to get the stiff end of the deal. So these are some processes that you're seeing robots and software start to automate these tasks, right? And you can kind of see how they break down in different parts of uh, the, the manufacturing workflow between kind of microelectronics work here and, and, and kind of everything else on the left side, right? The key thing here, at least just for today's episode, is the CNC. A really cool company uh, is called Zometry. And this is a marketplace company. And you say, okay, how can, how can marketplaces, how can platforms um, help manufacturing? You think about a lot of these robotics, you know, ways to automate manufacturing. A lot of them are not platform plays, right? They are highly technical. You need very skilled engineers. You've got a lot of really smart people to make that happen. But it's not really a platform model. Um, or, or we're still a little bit of a ways away from seeing how the platform model could come in. I think one natural application of it would be development platforms, right? Where you have different ones of these robotic startups that have an operating system, essentially, right? And you say, hey, here's the robot, has these different capabilities. I've got an operating system on it. Now you need to build software on top of this to automate the manufacturing process and the workflow, right? And and you could have a bunch of different software tools integrate into that you could have a, a you know a community of people that are um kind of like uh what you saw with uh, i think it's called shapeways makerbot you know makerbot the 3d printer the makerbot the 3d printer um they launched this thing called shapeways and shapeways is their marketplace to post different things that the machine can make right hey download this file if you got the shapeways machine or you know if you got the makerbot machine bam download this file from the shapeways marketplace and now your 3d printer can go make this object or this tool right zometry is a little bit different so this company custom manufacturing on demand with over 5000 suppliers our network has the capacity you need for prototyping and production right 3d printing injection mold you can see all the different kinds of jobs and, and manufacturing protocols uh, that their over 5,000 suppliers can fulfill for you, right? 
So they have a network of these different small business uh, manufacturers that have these machines that are hooked into the Zometry ecosystem. And uh, now, you know, if you need, uh, you need a, a tool made quickly, if you need, um, you're prototyping some tools, right? You can kind of have these uh, fast turnaround, customized uh, products cranked out for you, kind of small batch jobs as opposed to, right? That's the other kind of part about um, competing on manufacturing, right? There's the kind of tooling and prototyping and planning phase, right? And then there's the, okay, let's ramp manufacturing at scale. Those are also two very different workflows. This is more so focused on the former rather than the latter. Whereas, you know, typically a lot of kind of startups that you talk about for uh, robotic automated manufacturing are focusing on, okay, how am I going to scale manufacturing and crank out thousands and thousands of units every day? Um, and I've got these robots that can automate all that and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. So this is, you know, this company is focusing uh, a little bit differently on this, but it's a marketplace. It's in the manufacturing spectrum. They've raised about $200 million, founded out of Maryland. Very cool company. They just raised another $75 million in September of now last year, 2020. Um, so you are seeing in certain areas, you are seeing marketplace businesses get into manufacturing. I think another area, and I've spoken about on the show that we can see how marketplaces and platforms can help affect change when it comes to bringing manufacturing back to America is simply this on the demand side, right? So there's the part about this competing on price and quality. And as, you know, China ramps bottom up where they have the more commoditized, they started with the cheap labor. I'm talking decades here. I'm overgeneralizing, right? How can they build technology to, um, you know, to penetrate upstream? The U.S. has basically lost the downstream stuff and they're coming more from the upstream to the downstream. How can we bring sophisticated machinery and, and, and software and robots to, to make us to make us, the U.S., you know, cost-effective and competitive with <clears throat> the uh, the Chinese approach, it's it's a it's it's no small feat. So we need every little bit of help that we can get, and we can't solely rely on the government to do it for us because we've seen just their ineptitude um, on a bipartisan basis for decades. So can't hope they're going to get this. Even though you now might have both sides of government saying, "Yes, we need to bring back." you know, American manufacturing, great. How do you do that and execute? Whole other story. So how can we, private enterprise, try to affect change in this regard? On the demand side of this, right? If Amazon is saying, hey, 30% of the stuff you buy on Amazon is coming from a Chinese factory. If consumers start to say, you know what, Amazon, that's actually not cool. I would like to know. I would like to know who these sellers are. I would like to know which one of these sellers are based in China or just in, you know, uh, outsource manufacturing. If you go the other way, I would like to know which one of these sellers or which one of these manufacturers are making their stuff in America. And there are 
some uh, small uh, but growing marketplaces with this theme. Here is one of them. Madeinamerica.co, uh, not .com. See it here. And so shop thousands of Made in America products. You know, this is the other place where marketplaces and platforms can, can help bring this back is on the demand side. How can you get consumers to be aware, to vote with their dollars, to say, yes, I want to prioritize buying products from American businesses. But you know these startups are small. They don't have a lot of capital. They don't have huge traction. They have some traction. You know this uh, this company was was featured at you know one of the one of the White House summits on on you know bringing manufacturing back to America. This was all pre COVID. But still, you know they need a lot more capital. They need a lot more scale. But I think, you know, I think these are some of the the swim lanes, right? How can we leverage marketplaces to help better connect to small uh, mom and pop manufacturers, whether that's what Zometry is doing, which is more of a B2B play, uh, but still nonetheless, similar model. Or on, on the B2C side, whether it's Amazon, Etsy is a big proponent of this. Obviously, it's homemade craft goods. You know, they kind of inherently have to get most of their stuff from the US, otherwise just model wouldn't work as well. On the B2C side, then you also have Wish.com, right? And then you got Amazon with basically half of their third-party sellers are straight from Chinese factories, right? And then you got Made in America, madeinamerica.co here, right? And there's a few other uh, startup marketplaces that are focusing on this. So there's kind of the, the demand side. How can marketplaces help leverage demand and bring demand to American manufacturers? That's part of it. Then the other part, which is a much longer term play, much more nuanced, very capital intensive. And I'll be going deeper into that uh, in coming episodes, which is more on the development platform play. But to, to really do a development platform successfully, you, you, you can't really lead with the development platform in a model like this, right? You know, if 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 you are a robotic manufacturer and and you want to go build an ecosystem of third party developers to build software on top of your robotic automated manufacturing operating system okay you need a lot of customers using that uh for the single user utility as we would call it right using you got to sell that product as a linear product that product needs to deliver enough value that these uh, manufacturing customers, which are going to be you know much larger customers, you're talking about now really scaling that manufacturing process uh, and automating it um, and, and in the tune of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of units, right? These are very large scale um, systems. So you need to get a lot of those customers actively using your product before, right, to get enough demand that you could incentivize building a community, third party software developers who can build integrations or who can build other tools or, you know, molds um, into, uh, into the system, kind of like Shapeways. That one's a little bit farther out in terms of platform models, really, you know, I think having a huge impact on the manufacturing. I think some of where we can, where we, the platform community, can affect change a little bit sooner is on the more of the product marketplace side the kind of channeling demand to American manufacturers as opposed to, let's say, Chinese manufacturers. Nothing wrong with that. 
friendly reminder go uh, follow us on Rumble um, fascist YouTube is not where we plan to put all of our eggs in, in the fascist basket um, we, we are not okay we do not agree with the level of content censorship going on at big tech monopolies um, they still do create a lot of value in, in society uh, but they have opened Pandora's box and and cross that threshold of, uh, you know, being objective and they can't, you know, they can't get out of their own way. They can't fix this problem on their own anymore. Um, so follow us on rumble. We're getting a lot of rumbles. We're getting subscribers and, um, you will find all of this content there and then maybe some special content, uh, that we are not going to put on YouTube, but we will put there instead. So, um, to follow up on that point about just the state of tech monopolies and, and censorship and so on and so forth, um, we're going to go to this uh, lawsuit that was actually filed by the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton uh, a few weeks ago going after Google and Facebook. And this is, this is uh, about this thing called Project Jedi. And so basically the gist of it is Project Jedi was a secret agreement between Google and Facebook. It basically said that Google saw Facebook's rising rising dominance in digital advertising. Google and Facebook at the time of this agreement, I think it was 2016, about 60% of the collective digital advertising market between the both of them. And what Google basically said is, hey, you know, we, we see all these other competitors coming in here, Snapchat and uh, Amazon and, you know, other digital advertising competitors. So Facebook, if you don't integrate with these other competitors in, in the digital advertising world, right, all these people want to make software integrations into, into Facebook to help cross-pollinate ads and um, do these different ad marketplaces and, you know, all these different ad tools. They said, hey, don't do that. Don't integrate with them. We, Google, we will, we will allow Facebook advertisers to get preferential treatment in the Google ad network, right? So we're going to give your Facebook advertising program some special sauce. But in order to do this, we don't want you to integrate with basically Google's competitors. There are other competitors. Facebook was was much smaller than they are now, but they, you know, they they. I mean, this was only a few years ago. This wasn't ten years ago. So Facebook still had a considerable um, advertising business, which has continued to grow. And um, they did it, and they called it Project Jedi, and they've found the documents actually showing that this was all true. And they had their lawyers, you know, set these agreements up in such a way so that, I mean, they knew there was antitrust concern with this, but they still did it anyway. And I think that's the really interesting thing. My, my, my interview on uh, Maria Bartiromo's show the other day, you know, talking about the fact that these tech CEOs actually, you know, have lost control over their ability to rein in content censorship and abusing uh, 
their users' data. Um, and you know, I went much deeper into that um, on last episode. I don't need to rehash it all, but this is just another sign to show that in in the face of these businesses being completely unchecked, the amount of weight that they throw around when these kinds of partnerships come together, um, it if if you don't do anything about it, if you don't act on it, they'll just continue to do it. Right? I'll do more. I'll do worse. They just will continue to push the limits until they see where the limits are. And we've seen that on content censorship. We've seen that on data abuse. Everyone talks about how it's such a big issue or this or that. And then there's no actual penalties. There's no actually limits created. There's no actual pushback. And then, you know, the inmates run the asylum, basically. And, and that's what you have going on here. You just have such gross lack of internal controls at these companies when it comes to something like content censorship and, you know, kicking creators off of YouTube or, or demonetizing websites from Google search or, you know, kicking creators off of Facebook um, because they're talking about stuff that the platform doesn't agree with. Supposed to be, you know, not a publisher, supposed to be an open exchange of, of, of information and ideas, right? It's the whole premise of platform. But then you have, you have the leadership at these companies negotiating, here it is finally loaded, negotiating these kinds of deals. They, this, didn't, this wasn't like middle level managers. That's what I was talking about on the interview, that the mid level managers are completely run amok and, and Sundar at Google and Zuckerberg at Facebook just. They can't rein in all these powers that they've given to mid-level managers. There's thousands of these people running all over the place. This is, a, this is at the senior level. This deal doesn't go down without it being known at the absolute top of the organization. It's easy to show that they have monopolistic power in digital advertising. Now, now the key to this lawsuit, just like the key to what the EU um, is doing, what Poland just announced to... Uh, be able to find Facebook and Google if they kick off creators. They can find them up at $2 million for each violation. If they don't, you know, if they kick off a creator that violates Poland's free speech laws, they can uh, tell Facebook or Google to reinstate that user's permissions. And then if they don't, they can find them $2 million. What will probably happen is Google and Facebook will do less obvious things than banning people outright. They'll, you know, shadow ban them or they'll, they'll, uh, they'll mute the, uh, the virality of their posts and, you know, there's a lot of gray matter. So, you know, if Facebook and Google want to play dirty, they can, they can play all day. Um, but anyway, steps in the right direction, right? Now what you're doing is you're forcing Facebook and Google to actively and willingly subvert the uh, intention and, and the will and the laws and of, of these countries. EU is going after has 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 discussed a strategy. They haven't brought any cases yet, but they've discussed the strategy to say that these tech monopolies are using data to take advantage of producers, whether it's sellers on Amazon, content creators on Facebook and Google. Similarly, here the case is looking not at the consumer. Right? What does the consumer care if uh, if Project Jedi exists? The consumer, the one receiving the ads, right? It doesn't hurt the consumer. Every tech monopoly, when they get to monopolistic critical mass scale, they take advantage of the producer first and then the consumer, but very rarely the consumer. They want to keep the consumer happy. They take advantage of the suppliers, of the producers. The producers in this case 
are the advertisers. So by doing this, what they're doing is saying, hey, advertisers, we are, we are killing off competition, right? We're killing off other avenues, which you could be spending your ad dollars on or you could be using to deploy your ad dollars on other exchanges, right? But by us kind of co-opting Facebook's digital advertising audience, we're going to have this combined entity. That combined entity, Project Jedi, is not going to integrate with any of these third-party competitors or tools, which is then putting the producers, the advertisers, at a disadvantage. Okay, You have clear monopolistic power in terms of just scale and control of the digital advertising market, right? So that's the first kind of uh, checkbox for, for antitrust violations. And the second checkbox is, did they take advantage of a customer? This is where everyone's been getting hung up. They need to say that the producer, the advertiser, is the customer of Facebook and Google. And it makes sense, right? Who is paying Facebook and Google money like a customer would? The advertiser is, right? Facebook and Google are getting paid by advertisers. Advertisers equal customers. And uh, Facebook and Google are actively working together to uh, put their producers, their customers at a disadvantage and, you know, ultimately drive, being able to drive up prices on advertising and, and uh, reduce the options that they have for other avenues to, to, to spend their, their ad, ad budgets. That's the case. Well, we'll see if that's how they go after the case, but that's how I would go after the case. I think that's how the EU is thinking of going after the case. I think that's, you know, what Poland, they don't have a case, but they're just now making laws and making rules. Um, this is the justice minister in Poland. We'll see how Ken has done it, but you've had um, uh, now over 10 different U.S. states sign on to this um, antitrust motion uh, led by Texas. And um, I think it wins. I think it wins if they play it right. If you if if they go after the consumer, I think they get defocused, and you confuse the court, you confuse yourself, and Facebook and Google. Then, you know, they're just gonna pick away at that consumer thread. And if they can get that thing going, then then the wheels start to come off. But if you can keep this focus just on customer equals advertiser, advertiser disadvantaged by Project Jedi, should be a win. But we'll see. Either way, it's gonna take a long time. The DOJ case against Google, which is a joke of a case, horrible case anyway. The trial date is set, f set for 2023. So, you know, what these companies, obviously, they're all in plat. Um, what is the threat to their stock market in the near term? You know, their stock price, there's really none. There's so much more that needs to happen to actually see these things through for you even see if they're playing out the case correctly. Does the case have teeth? On the surface of it, it should, but then you got to get it now. Now you got to get a lot more tactical with it to really say, okay, well, even if they played all their cards right, and let's say in five years the ruling comes down, or or you're getting close to a ruling, you know, because you can, you got to do discovery, and then you got to have, and then you have the hearing, and then and then you can appeal it five different times, and each side will appeal it, and then you know you got to go up through the court. It's going to take forever. Um, it's good that they're doing it because if you didn't do it and you didn't 
have any checks and balances in place, then they would just keep doing worse stuff. But it's going to take a long time. Where will it end up? Are Google and Facebook going to get um, broken up over this? I don't think so. I don't think this breaks them up. What you need to do, yes, you need to have fines. But the FTC, the FCC, we've got multiple agencies here that could do this. You need to start to regulate the tech monopolies individually. Right? Each one of these businesses is so unique. They're so big. They're so different. Each one of these tech monopolies needs custom guidelines and regulation, which helps regulate their operations as a business. Each one of them has different business models. Yes, they're all platforms. But we've, we've got eight different platform business models in the book. They've got, you know, each of them has multiple business models just in the United States, let alone globally. You got so many people. So you, you can't just expect to regulate all of them with, you know, one big ruling. But you can go in and you can start to put in protections for producers, right? Whether that's content creators on Google and Facebook or it's also advertisers on Google and Facebook. Both of those are effectively a form of a producer to, uh, you know, to the platform. So that's really where if you can start to first and foremost protect producers as, as, it, as it relates to each one of these tech monopolies, they all have different types of producer bases. YouTube has different producers than Google search. Facebook has different producers on Facebook versus Instagram versus WhatsApp versus like 10 other things that they have. So you got to start looking at these things individually. Maybe it leads to that. And if it does lead to that, again, I actually think that's a good thing. Net net for Platt, it'll actually be a good thing because it will help make a more competitive landscape and and playing field, um, which ultimately is good, and um, you know creates more value rather than having all the value concentrated amongst a handful of companies, which is you know where we've been trending now for a number of years. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us. Happy New Year, and I'll talk to you soon.